Our topic today is an overview of Ezra and Nehemiah. Because we don't have a lot of time, we need to move quickly, especially through the background information, so that we have time for discussion. In non-Jewish scholarship, these two books are part of the historical books of the Hebrew Bible, Joshua through Chronicles, minus Ruth. Unlike Joshua through Kings, and more like Chronicles, neither Ezra nor Nehemiah are positioned in the Hebrew canon among the prophets, the Navim. Instead, they belong to the writings, the Kesubim. And unlike the prophetic corpus that includes Joshua through Kings, these books, along with possibly Chronicles, were written after the Babylonian exile during the Second Temple period. This means that enormous changes have occurred since scribes wrote First and Second Kings. Scholars think that the editor and compiler of Ezra and Nehemiah also wrote or compiled First and Second Chronicles. For instance, the verses at the end of Second Chronicles are very similar to those at the start of First Chronicles. Now we come from Israel and Judah to Judaism changes because of the exile. The partial destruction of Jerusalem, particularly of the temple, and secondarily of the city with walls, in fulfillment of Jeremiah's and Ezekiel's prophecies, led the captives now settled in Babylonian culture to three-think everything. They not only had been ripped from their homeland, they had occupied a new identity from the Babylonians, the name Jews. They did not call themselves that. The Babylonians called themselves Jews. With the loss of the temple, they became people of the book, and the book became predominantly about law. Moses became for them the Hammurabi of Judaism. Unless you think that's very anachronistic to say, uh, Hammurabi uh, was copied by Neo-Babylonian uh, scribes uh, and kept alive by Nebuchadnezzar. So Hammurabi, even though he was millennia away, uh, was kept alive in Nebuchadnezzar's time. Several institutions developed during this time period, synagogues as teaching centers, bodies of priests exercising judicial and religious authority combined. So now we have the emergence of Judaism. In early pre-exilic times, the Hebrew people considered themselves Israelites, literally in Hebrew, sons of Israel. Now this remained the case until after the death of King Solomon when his son and successor Rehoboam, through his high-handed ways, split the kingdom of Israel into two segments, the kingdom of Judah to the south and the kingdom of Israel to the north. The loss of the temple, this is now jumping back to the exile, and political subjugation, first to Babylon, then to Persia, caused the Jews to seek to be the people of the book in place of temple worship and to formulate a religion that today we call Judaism. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we find some of this information play, or formation play out. So who was Ezra? Ezra was a descendant of Aaron, and of Phineas. Remember who Phineas was? Something like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that's Aaron's grandson. 
He was therefore a priest, but he was also a scribe, likely trained not only in the Jewish schools, but also in the Babylonian schools, where he would have become well-versed in Babylonian texts as a tupsharu, literally king of the tablet or scribe. Uh, it says in the text of Ezra, he came up from Babylonia. He was never in Persia, he was in Babylonia. In the Neo-Babylonian period, the scribe became a judicial figure, opening, operating in the courts, sometimes even playing the role as judge. It is likely that his scribal judicial role continued into the Seleucid period. Babylonia and its city Babylon did not disappear with the Persians. And Alexander the Great came to Babylonia. Uh, they hailed him as king. The Babylonians did. And then the priests read the omens and discovered that the gods were angry with the king. The omens never named the king. They were angry with the king. And so they went to Alexander and they said, the omens show that the gods are angry with the king. Uh, please allow us to do a sharp uh, kuki ritual. That's the substitute king ritual, where you took a king, installed him on the throne for X many days, and at the end of those days, you took him out with his wife and executed them, thus giving the gods what they wanted. They wanted the king dead. So they begged Alexander to let them do that ritual, and Alexander refused, apparently. The texts are not complete and not totally clear, but anyway, we know that Alexander died in Babylon. So you can, we can see Ezra playing this judicial role, forming a complement to Nehemiah the governor. Because of my findings that the final author of Job used Babylonian texts, I lean toward Ezra as that final editor of Job. Because he shows a very distinct knowledge of the famous work that all scribes copied in the text. In the, uh, in the two-piece schools, <laughs> talent schools, um, they, they copied it in English. And Job shows a distinct understanding of that text. Who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has comforted, a fitting name for what Nehemiah is able to do for his people. Unlike Ezra, Nehemiah does not give his full lineage other than to state his father's name, Hakaliah. In exile and beyond, keeping an accurate, accurate genealogical record was important if one was to gain any prestige or power in Jewish circles. This does not mean that Nehemiah had no interest in Jewish ancestry, as chapter 7 attests. We only know that Nehemiah was the cupbearer of Artaxerxes I. In antiquity, cupbearers did more than taste wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. They served as a professional confidence of the king and could influence him in various ways. This is exhibited by the king's concern over Nehemiah's sad face in Nehemiah 2. Uh, so what, what cupbearers did was serve as advisors to the king, really. Um, and that's because the king could totally trust them. <laughs> you know what cupbearers had to do. If, if the wine was uh, doctored with poison, they died instead of the king. So now we come to both Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra begins with a historical account typical of a scribe of the end of the Babylonian exile under the Persian king Cyrus 
and the early return of the exiles to Judea. This section tells of the rebuilding of the temple and Jerusalem. Nehemiah's book begins with a very personal account of his grief and prayer over hearing that the walls were still down around Jerusalem and that the gates had been burned with fire. Both Ezra and Nehemiah get to go to Jerusalem by the ascent of the same king, Artaxerxes I, who was the stepson of Queen Esther. And um, probably the son of Vashti, which to me is a hero. hero. Vashti is a hero. Though both Ezra and Nehemiah seem to work well together as a team, their personalities and contributions remain unique. Now we're going to come to three theological problems in Ezra and Nehemiah, only two of which we will deal with because I want time to discuss. And I, I, I ran out of time working on this. <laughs> so, and I knew we would run out of time to discuss really, so, uh, The last one... If we come to it, we can discuss it briefly, but um, I wanted especially to discuss the first two. The first one is the refusal of their neighbors who claim to worship the same God to help them build the temple. The second one is the divorce of non-Jewish wives because of mixing the holy seed with the people of the lands. And the final one is the Sabbath reforms of Nehemiah. We will rebuild the temple alone. Okay? Ezra 4.3. And let's read the text. When the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of families and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing him to him ever since the days of King Ezrahaddon of Syria, who brought us here. Let me pause and give you the background of this. Uh, the northern kingdom was taken by Assyria in captivity long before Judah was taken in captivity by the Babylonians. So you're talking about the earlier part of the, new, the uh, first millennium when Assyria was in control. And what happens under Hezarhaddon is that, well, Hezarhaddon and, and Assyria in general, love to mix people up all over. It, it disembodied them so, so that they, the Assyrians could have better control. There was less insurrection. So they brought a whole bunch of conglomerate number of people to Assyria. And by the way, the original, I mean not to Assyria, but to the northern kingdom. And by the way, not all the northern, northern kingdom was taken to Assyria our archaeologists estimate that really only about maybe a fourth of the northern kingdom went to Assyria and other places. So they brought them there to um, mingle in with the Israelites who lived there. They intermarried with them. And Second King says that lions, the Lord sent lions among the people, and they were slaughtering people. And so they decided that the God of the land, which would be Yahweh, uh, was displeased with them. So they requested Ezrahad to send a priest who could come and teach them the ways of this God. And so Ezrahad did. They got the priest, 
And the community grew up um, having kind of a polytheistic uh, religion, but also worshiping Yahweh, I think, as their supreme God. And the reason I say that is because these, this community later became known as the Samaritans. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, they are the Samaritans. And the Samaritans believed in one portion of Hebrew scripture. Can you guess what that portion was? The Pentateuch. They believed in Torah. Uh, and they have preserved Torah so that we actually have a very ancient manuscript known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. It comes from the Samaritan community. So I wanted to give you that background before we go to the next paragraph. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of family in Israel said to them, You shall have no part with us in building a house to our God, but we will alone build to, the, to Yahweh, that's the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus of Persia has commanded us. No. We don't worship the same God. No, you can't build with us. So what happens next? Well, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build, and they bribed officials to frustrate their plan. So, Gene... This is in Jerusalem, right? Right. So who are the people of the land? It's not everybody who went against them. Well, there were Jews left behind. So, yeah, and the people of the land are the ones that made Josiah king. So is this the same group? Or are we saying these are Samaritans? I, don't they call uh, those people from Samaria? I, I believe so, that's right. Uh, the people of the land certainly joined in force. Uh, so when Ahasuerus ascends the throne, they write a letter of complaint against the Jews for working on rebuilding Jerusalem. And this is the king's reply. And maybe I am confusing this with later with Nehemiah when the Samaritans are obstructing things. Um, but I, I believe somewhere in Nehemiah and Ezra, the Samaritans are mentioned. Uh, this is the king's reply to Rehum, the royal deputy, and to Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria. There you have Samaria. Uh, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been read in translation before me. So I made a decree, and someone searched and discovered that this city has risen against the kings from long ago. And that rebellion and sedition have been made in it, therefore issue an order that the people may be made to cease, and that this city will not be rebuilt until I make a decree. So I've already mentioned who the Samaritans are. Um, and I, I think I already covered that. So let's move to the questions. Why would Zerubbabel and Jeshua, the high priest, Sia, Zechariah 3, or Joshua, the high priest, mentioned, feel that it was necessary to refuse the proffered help of the Samaritans. Clearly they did become enemies of the Jews, but were they always in that frame of mind? Or did they react to the refusal of their help? Was there another option available to Zerubbabel and Jeshua? If so, what would it look like? 
Let's discuss. Well, I would just add what came to my mind when you said they asked for a priest was the story of David when he was in exile with the Philistines. And he said, I can't worship Yahweh. Somebody, some other God's territory. And uh, yes, gods are very territorial. Yeah, so that they, that sounds like a similar sort of thing. Yahweh's territory, so we better learn how to worship him. Right. Not together. The Samaritans, what happened is that they were very inclined to other nations and Gentiles, and they included them within their vicinity, and they ended up worshiping. Um, the same format as some of the Gentiles. And eventually what happened is that you couldn't figure out what was a Jew and what was a Gentile anymore. And these, these Jews were very, we are Jews, we are Jews. And the Judeans said, oh no, you are not. You are mixing God's Torah with the Gentiles' doctrines. And so eventually they became a separation between the Jews and the Samaritans. And even Jesus reminded the Samaritan woman, you know, salvation is of the Jews. You call yourself a Jew. You think you're part of us, but you're not. He reminded her in a very subtle way that, you know, salvation is of the Jews. Jews know who they worship. Samaritans do not. So, so we could argue that in order to preserve their identity, preserve their ability to continue to worship Yahweh, uh, that they had to restrict themselves from other nations. Who were the Galileans? The Galileans were a mixture too. Well, the Galileans were of the Northern Kingdom originally, uh, and whether they were as mixed as Samaritans, Samaritans are in between. So you have Jerusalem and Judah down here, uh, the Samaritans here, and then Galilee. And that's where the disciples came, a lot of them yeah. came from Galilee. And Jesus comes from Nazareth, yeah, that you raise an interesting point. Were they as mixed as the Samaritans? Yeah. Well, if it's only Jews to build the temple, then they can restrict it to be used only by the Jews. Which they do. So these mixed people come in and then kind of degrade what the service really is going to be and what it's for. You're seeing what, what becomes very strict national exclusivity. Yeah. I think we're seeing the same thing in our country and in our church. Yeah. You cannot be an Adventist unless you do this. And you're not really an Adventist if you're in the Adventist church if you don't do yeah. the same. Yeah. Yeah. To have women up front is not Adventist. <laughs> 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 Second temple and Solomon's temple, the context seemed to be much more inclusive because Hiram came down. He was not a Jew, but he had a huge impact and influence on the building of the temple. Um, and even you know Solomon, in early on, I mean, he married an Egyptian princess. I mean, so there's. See, that, that's, so which makes me wonder if this is a kind of implicit reaction. It is a reaction. It is a reaction to the exile. Because they believe that the exile is because they 
they oh, fell yeah. apart. And, and Solomon, they go back to Solomon, and they say he brought in all these wives with their gods and started worshiping them. And, and, and child sacrifice became, I believe child sacrifice started in Jerusalem under, under Solomon. Um, so it, it didn't, wasn't just Manasseh that did that. Um, they did it under Solomon as well. Uh, so it's a reaction to that. And when you're in an immature state, now you know why I chose the scriptures. I chose. When you're in an immature state, you have to be careful. Right? You have to set boundaries, very firm boundaries. It's when you mature and become solidified in your beliefs more, you can then intermingle and, and uh, form relationships with outsiders. I'm wondering if this uh, fragility or weak state, this sense of threat, is imagined or real. Are they in a real state where... Uh, where interacting with these people is is an actual threat. Well, that's a good question because they their strength of numbers compared to the rest of the people. It's it's um it's a mixed bag, I think, because you do have uh, the Jews, returning Jews, having married outside Judaism, and that becomes the next problem. Are any of these people monotheists? <laughs> Or Ephraim right. is, is, so Yahweh's yeah, the king of the Lord of this land, or whatever, worships yeah. him. If the people of the land are polytheists, yeah. and, and the returning Jews, and maybe the Jews who stayed, I, I don't know, are actually monotheists, that's a boundary that is interesting. Yeah. Um, but I wonder if they actually believed in the gods of that. It wasn't their god, but that they're, so are they, how monotheists? They're monotheistic. They're very monotheistic because the people, the the people who believed in the God of the land were the dispersed ones brought out of Assyria by Ezra. They weren't the Israelite community, uh, and so so uh, certainly the Jews coming back from exile have determined they are going to worship Yahweh and they're only going to worship Yahweh. But do they think the other gods exist? Or do they think the other people they don't, they, know they don't. I, I think as of Isaiah, they don't think the gods exist. Isaiah totally taunts yes. other gods. Uh, and, and keep in mind, they have become people of the book, so they have read uh, the Torah and the Navi very, very carefully. Um, Which would be a different development uh, from those who remain behind and kept up whatever they could of <coughs> Jewish religion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there would be a mixture. existence before the before well, the exile. Yeah. And, and that, that mixture, you see, is, is why they have so many uh, mixed marriages that we're going to deal with next. You know, I was just trying to sort this out in my mind, thinking it's almost like the prodigal son and the older brother. I stayed here and you left and went and did your thing. Because uh, this is really hard for me. How did they decide who was going to be the true Jews and who was outsiders and who had the right to build and who didn't have the right to build and who was going to be the enemies? How did they decide that if there had been all this transition and all this intermarriage? Did you have some sort of, you had to go through a lineage thing or something? What yes. Did you do? Yes, lineage. Oh. You had to be able to trace your ancestry back to Abraham. 
Yeah. Or at least back to the ancestor that was before the exile. The New Testament begins that way. It lists all the different tribes and how Jesus came from. And so that, that was very important to them. How yeah. they did it. And the only one really that we can trace is the Levites, right. the Kohens. Right. Because they had the last name, Kohen, Levi. Right. Today. Because of the mixture, we don't know who's a Jew and who's not a Jew. And that's still an argument in Israel today. Who is a Jew? <laughs> yeah. The people, the pe by the time of Jesus, the people of the land were considered pretty much outside the realm of salvation. It was only the people who could uh, have their genealogy in this state. Now, I'm going to have to watch the time on this because I need to unpack where I go with this. I haven't said where I stand on it. Um, <laughs> So I have two hands, and I think I'll stop with that arm. And... I, I, I watched a show about a biblical scholar that um, was saying that Israel was polytheistic, and it wasn't until after the exile they tried to they tried to um, delete from history that fact. And um, that biblical scholar was showing all the different gods that they uh, worship. Um, and uh, showed yeah. evidence and so on. Yeah, before the exile, I think the Bible is very clear. Before the exile, they were polytheistic to a great extent. Um, so maybe it was not a who was a Jew, it was a particular, um, you know, those things after the exile came back uh, trying to just be a one god religion versus there's there's else. both because the mention of holy seed mixing with holy seed is both but the, you know the social thing here is really interesting because you're living in the land you didn't go into exile your descendants are living there you've been there the whole time and this group comes back from Babylon, and they say we're taking over so now I think we'll move. I would like to suggest there's light from Zechariah. I'd like to suggest that Zechariah deals with this whole issue in a remarkable way. Zechariah is a contemporary of Zerubbabel who told them, You can't worship with us, you can't build with us. Get out, <laughs> essentially. Zechariah 1 to 4 have to do with restoring Jerusalem, including the temple. I looked up and saw a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I asked, Where are you going? He answered to me to measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what its height length is. Then the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls. How can you have a village without walls? It's not safe. Jerusalem shall be inhabited like villages without walls because of the multitude of people and animals in it. For I will be a wall of fire all around it, says the Lord, and I will be the glory within it. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. 
What are you, O great mountain? Before it's a river bowl, you shall become a plain, and you shall bring out the top stone amidst shouts of grace, grace to it. The great fear is of going back to exile. That's the great fear. And this addresses that fear that God is their wall. Not to worry about not having a wall. At this point in time, they don't have a wall until Nehemiah. Jerubbabel's quite a few years before Nehemiah. And God is saying, look, I'm the wall. And you will have so many people, you can't have a wall. Who are all those people? And I believe the context bears out the nations will come to Jerusalem. Yes, in that same chapter it says that that the uh, Gentiles will come to the Jew yes. and buy his sleeve and say, I want to come with you right. because I want to live on God from you. Right. So what this suggests is that God is saying, quit worrying about people who want to help build the temple with you. Quit trying to force them out of the picture. Don't carry arms against them. Don't go to battle against them. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Now, I would, I would like to go a step further and say, what would have happened if the Jews had had the maturity to say to the Samaritans who wanted to help them build the temple, come study Torah with us. It's a question. It takes a lot of maturity to be able to do that when you're in this situation. So this was the best opportunity then. That's how I'm reading it. Well, it depends on, on the, what would happen to put up you know, with the Japanese, when it was destroyed, nobody, and the Japanese all of a sudden were the problem. <laughs> yeah, and some of them say, when after exile, nobody's thinking about, oh, these people need to be taught Torah. It's more about, what you did to us, you know? It's the same thing that happened in so many different generations all over the world. It's like, you but, murdered but, us, but you kill us. See, the thing is, that doesn't always make it right. We do that. We do. We we are all human. We react that way. Mm-hmm. We're very self-protective. But that's immaturity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was listening to a podcast. That it was actually a repeat that I heard before. Um, it's the story of a young man who is they, they call him white supremacist, white nationalist royalty. And David Duke was his godfather, and he's was very uh, son of people who are very high up in the. Um, white nationalist movement, and this was a few years ago. He went off to college uh, with a lot of fervor for what he believed in, um, and but didn't tell anyone who he was. Uh, but after about a semester, he was outed, and people were being a little bit mean to him because at this college they didn't like what he and his fault people who had been preaching. It was a young man who was Jewish there who had a Shabbat supper in his room every Friday night and just invited them and told everyone else in advance, we're not going to try to talk to him about being a white nationalist. We're just going to be friends with him. And did that for two years. And gradually he was able to start thinking what we would say is more clearly 
and asking questions and having empathy and realizing what his views really meant for the people around him, etc. Now he's completely on the other side trying to. That's an excellent example of where I wish the exactly had gone. Exactly. And, and they were wrong. When I look at the steps, the various steps that Nehemiah took, it seems to me that he and the others who came back with him came back with a gaping, painful hole from their experience. And they were doing a lot of reactions out of that space. And one of the things that's missing in both of these scenarios that is to me very telling. Go to Torah. Moses, when he doesn't know what to do, he always goes to God. He doesn't assume to take on responsibility for himself. But in Ezra and Nehemiah, all the players don't ask God, they just react themselves. It's uh, kind of ironic that um, Rahab and Ruth and Lydia to David and I hear these people are talking about the purity of the law and trying to keep it pure. <laughs> well, there's a there's a thing laws in Deuteronomy of, of what is supposed to happen to the Moabite, and, and and they're not allowed into the camp into the assembly of the Lord uh, for any generation. They're they're expelled from the assembly. Uh, so let's go to the next issue because our time is fast going. I'm having to push this a little bit. Um, so here we have the issue of foreign or pagan wives. The priests and Levites haven't kept themselves separate from the people of the neighboring lands with their detestable practices. They've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, and the holy descendants have become mixed with the neighboring peoples. Moreover, the officials and leaders have led the way into his, this unfaithfulness. Ezra's reaction, when I heard this, I tore my clothes and cloak, pulled out my hair from my head and beard, and sat down in shock. Then all those who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me on account of the transgression of the returned exiles while I remained sitting in shock until the evening sacrifice. Ezra then prays a long repentance prayer. So here's how Nehemiah deals with this. Also in those days I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of various peoples. They couldn't speak the language of Judah. So Nehemiah's response, so I scolded them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. <laughs> this is why I said these are two very different leaders. Ezra pulls out his own hair, <laughs> Nehemiah pulls out their hair. <laughs> and he said... You won't give your daughters to their sons in marriage or take their daughters in marriage for their sons or their yourselves. Didn't the Israel's king Solomon sin on account of such women? Foreign wives led him into sin. Should we then listen to you and do all this great evil, acting unfaithfully toward our God by marrying foreign women? So what they decide to do? While Ezra was praying, praying and confessing, weeping and bowing down before God's house, and by the way, Ezra weeps, um, but Nehemiah makes the people use. That's another difference. Uh, the people also wept in distress. Then Shechaniah, Jehael's son from the family of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the neighboring peoples. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us now make a covenant with our God to send away, which is the technical term for divorce, 
all these wives and their children according to the advice of my master. And of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the instruction. Get up, for it is your duty to deal with this matter. We will support you. Be strong and act. So Ezra got up and made the leading priests, the Levites, and all Israel take a solemn pledge that they would do as they had been said. So they took a solemn pledge. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem. I'm shortening this story. There's details. Uh, to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if they did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders of all their properties should be forfeited and they themselves banned from the congregation. Then all the people of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within three days. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have trespassed and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now make confession to the Lord, the people of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is the time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for many of us have transgressed in this matter. Let our officials represent the whole assembly, and let all, our towns, let all in our towns who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and the judges of every town, until the fierce wrath of our God on this account is overheard from us. No one has demonstrated the fierce wrath of God is upon them. They read this in the law and, and assumed that that's what had happened. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, head of the family, according to their families, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. There follows a list of over 100 names. Each of these pledged to send away, that is, divorce, his wife. What might be the reasons? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take their side first. Okay. What might be the reasons for that, that divorcing foreign women was necessary? You think of their history. Solomon marries all these foreign wives, brings them wholesale into, into Jerusalem, sets up all the shrines that entice everybody who are closer to polytheism than they are polytheism. <laughs> into wholesale policies. And it involves the sacrifice of children to these gods. So, I mean, we're not just talking about Yeah, you're not talking about something the nuclear family being broken up. That's not what you're talking about. Yep. There was a lot of bad stuff that went along with Right, with, so with that. So that's the concern is, he says, you know, the detestable practices of that right. includes the sacrifice there's a lot of sexual behavior that went on, and and so I mean this is not just if your concern is about representing God properly, you don't really have any options here on this matter. So so that's their side of this story, but we have to add, talk about the other side. So I have a couple of questions. The first one is: Were these mixed marriages? In people who had already returned from Babylon, or were they the people who had not gone in the first place? Well, I think there's both. There's allusions to both in, in the text. Because those who had not gone in the first place were from a polytheistic form of, of 
yeah, Israel. That's real. So mm -hmm. you have that sort of thing going on. The other question that I have is, this is supposed to be a patriarchal system. So why is it that having wives from other places that is their religion that dominates? Because, because the Bible does illustrate that even in a patriarchal system, wives have a tremendous amount of power. That's right. <laughs> Well, and, and that's my next question. And this is looking at it now from the other side. What would be the fallout to the divorce room? Were they required what to support them? them after they divorced them? They had no choice. In ancient Near East, if you divorced, it was possible for women to divorce men, but it was rare. And mostly men divorced women. When a man divorced his wife, she had no choice but to go. And was he required to support her? No. All right. Go where? Exactly. 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 She would have to try to go back to her family. Who was her, where was her family, and were they even still alive? Would, right. she, could she find anybody to support her? And how would she have her children? children? She's married. And hopefully, she had the batula. Is that what it's called? No. Yeah. Yeah. The batula yes. that would allow her to, to buy to buy land and, and to su survive. But often the husband spent that. Well, you know, Jewish law does have women's rights. It, sometimes it comes across very patriarchal, but really and truly, it's there really to protect women. And women could divorce men too then. It wasn't, it's just that women were just very young, got married. They didn't get married like how we do today. They got married at what, 14 to 16 years old? And so really truly, they didn't know themselves. So once they got married, they had kids and their whole lives were just into that, having children and taking care of their husband. But women basically did have a lot of rights in the sense of, you know, they could have done. And, and by the way, the Talmud does talk about that, that if these divorced foreign women said to their husbands, hey, we want to follow your God, just like Ruth did, if they said that they would take away and put away all their idols and all the feminine gods, they, they were welcome. The problem is that's not in the text of Ezra. I know. And, and if, if it were, I would have a much better feeling about it. I think one of the hardest things about studying the Bible, uh, this is not necessarily a model for our society. It's, a, it's an accurate report of history and what the decisions these people made. And I don't see God's approval anywhere. Well, let's, let's move on because we only have five minutes and I need to unpack where, they, where I go with this. Um, and what would be the fallout to their children if they had any? Now their children might be grown. Maybe that's not an issue if they're Maya's children. Um, are Ezra's actions examples for us to follow? Who is our example? That's something we need to always bring to the Bible. Um, and why or why not? I wish we had time to discuss these, but we really don't. Are Ezra's actions better than Nehemiah's, about the same or worse? And I'll let you decide that. <laughs> How can we reconcile this with the way Jesus treated foreign women, with the way the early church treated foreign women? Women were the house leaders of the early church. So let's see if we can find further light on this. Malachi. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 6. Have we all not one Father? Has no, what, not, I'm sorry, that should be not. Has not one God created us? 
Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our ancestors? And now here's the answer to that question. And I'm thinking it's a quote. There's no way to know when there's a quote in here. Unless it says, thus says. And that's why you have that all over the place. A designated quote. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. And has married the daughter of a foreign god. Does this sound like what we're talking about? May the Lord cut off... From the tents of Jacob, anyone who does this, only any wit to witness or answer or to bring an offering to the Lord of hosts. End of quote. And in this you do well as well. You cover the Lord's altar with tears. Remember the people are weeping? With weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it as favor at your hand. You ask, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, the marriage covenant, did not one God make her? Notice he's not saying, is she not a Jew? Is she not part of your religion? No, he's saying God created her just as he created you. Both flesh and spirit are his. And what does the one God desire? Godly offspring. So look to yourselves, and do not let anyone be faithless to the wife of his lips. In other words, this is your problem to deal with and to make your wife feel that Yahweh is so attractive that she wants to worship him. For I hate divorce. The God of Israel, and the covering one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourselves, and do not be faithless. <coughs> Malachi, we don't know when Malachi was written, but we know it wasn't written early. The earliest it could have been written was the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, I have one more slide. Uh, several elements relate to Ezra and Nehemiah. Reference to the marriage of a daughter before in God. The people are crying, covering the altar with tears. The issue of divorce of wives that is apparently widespread. Malachi seems to address the concern of mixed marriages by reminding his listeners that the God who created them has also created their wives, and he owns both flesh and spirit. Putting this in any other context would not make as much sense. God comes down hard on divorce by saying, I hate divorce. But he goes beyond that to state also that he hates the covering of one's garment with violence. One could ask, is divorcing one's wife in an ancient Near Eastern context a violent act? I'm sorry, I, I'm going to have to move to the final slide. I'm suggesting this is another canonical method. That, and I, there's other places I could go to to show you the same kind of pattern. There's this pattern where in an earlier, early book you have a way that, where people need it at that time. And then you have a correction in a later book. The most stark one is, uh, did God or Satan tempt David to number Israel? Mm-hmm. You have it two ways. In an early book, 2 Samuel 24, 1, God tempted David to number Israel. In a later book, post-exilic, First uh, Chronicles 21, 1, Satan tempted David to number Israel. Have a correction of theology within the 
process of inspiration. And, and if you go back to the scriptures that I have, that's the model that inspiration follows. Let's have prayer. Dear God, we want to thank you that we have one example and one God who created all. We pray that we might follow that one example and worship that one God that might lead us to treat the rest of your creation with respect and love. In Jesus' name, amen.